Many of us have grown up hearing the phrase, God is in control. And in a year like 2020, that can be a really comforting thing. The idea that no matter what is happening in this crazy world, God is ultimately above it all and has the situation underhand. This idea of God being in control is often referred to in theological terms as the sovereignty of God. But not everyone agrees on what the sovereignty of God means or what it actually means for God to be in control. Yeah, it's a challenging topic. And when it comes to the problem of evil, it raises all sorts of challenging questions like, does God cause evil or does he merely allow it? And what does the difference mean for us as Christians? Like most things we talk about on this show, there are no easy answers. But we're hoping this conversation helps you think well about these questions and ultimately gives you hope in Jesus. You're listening to The Good Lion Podcast. man. So today we're talking about the lovely topic of sovereignty, not controversial at all. I was going to ask you this. Is there any topic in theology that you've heard more debates about than this one? Hmm, well, growing up in Calvary Chapel, I've heard a lot of debate about eschatology. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this is probably the second biggest one for sure. People have a lot to say about what is sovereignty? What does it mean for God to be in control? Growing up, what did you think that meant growing up in the church? So when I thought about it growing up, I because you hear this really young, at least in the church tradition that we've both come from. Yep. And I, I think this is true across a lot of Christian experience. The phrase God is in control. We feel very comfortable not just saying that, but saying that to really young kids. Yeah. Like there are some doctrines that we kind of feel maybe Maybe we should hold off on that for a little bit. But like right. this is one where it's like the youngest Sunday school class can hear that God is in control. Right. So yeah, when it's, I it's thought comforting. about it, yeah, it, it's a really comforting thing to say. It gives you a lot of it's, assurance, I think, at that age. Yeah, like it's a doctrine that feels good. You know, like the doctrine of sin doesn't feel good because it's like, hey, you're bad at life. Right. But the the doctrine of Jesus takes care of your sins and forgives you of your sins. That's one of the feel good theologies, which, again, we're not saying are bad theologies. I'm affirming that that theology does make me feel good. And so, yeah, I feel good and feel bad isn't a marker of right or wrong (laughs) on on theologies. Like we're not trying to say that we only advocate for feel bad doctrines. Like I don't (laughs) think that's what the God of all joy didn't build truth around what will make people feel bad. That's our new podcast coming up, the feel bad theology. (laughs) But yeah, so for me uh, growing up, I totally got that sense of when I heard people talk about God being in control, it made me feel like the same way I felt as a young kid when my dad was driving the car. I never questioned if he wasn't in control. Ever was like, oh, maybe my dad's a bad driver. As a young kid, I just had this faith where I could literally sit in the back, not pay attention to the road, play my Game Boy, or even just go to sleep. Um, There was that much assurance in my dad's driving. So, um, Yeah, there was a confidence that you're going to get from one place to another. Right. Yes. Yeah, I like that you even brought up playing your Game Boy because I always (laughs) thought of God being in control in a very video game-like way. Like, Mm -hmm. I always thought of it as... When I sit down with this gaming system, I am in control over this little character, this little avatar. And I thought, because for the most part, sometimes it was fun to like take a character and like make him evil or like make him jump off a cliff or whatever. But like for the most part, you wanted to see good things happen to your character. Right. So I kind of thought maybe that's what God is like. He's Mm -hmm. above all of it and he's 
the one at the controller and he wants to see good things happen so he's making things happen and guiding me along and building the world mm. so that good stuff happens and that was the real thing i thought god being in control was he makes good stuff happen directly in mm. christians lives the the game boy analogy makes me think of like complete control because i mean well when i'm playing a, a video game which i still do i've got a nintendo switch sitting right next to me I'm not going to play it while we record, don't worry. But, you know, when I'm playing a video game, there's two different things at play. There's the character, and I'm controlling the character, but then there's also enemies and scripted events that have happened. You know, in your mind as a kid, were you thinking of God as controlling you or just more of the situation around you? Like, are you the character? If you're in New Jersey and you go and get a slice of pizza, did God make you do that? And I'm just talking about your view as a child. I'm just trying to translate it. I think the best video game analogy was like the sims <laughs> where like you would you had some influence over what your character did but like really you built like the house they were in and you mm. built the world around them and you brought them the stuff that they needed at any given moment i don't right. think god like put a thought in my brain and i turned into a robot where i was like must pizza like right. I, I don't think that happened but I thought, like, God knew that I would need pizza. Yes. So he built a ton of pizza places <laughs> right around my house. Like, okay, that yeah. was kind of my thinking as a kid. So it's, it sounds like your thinking as a kid was less Super Mario Brothers. God is making you jump and more The Sims, where God yeah, is controlling exactly. your environment. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you become aware of the fact that many Christians disagree on what God's sovereignty means? It's not a single moment. I think what really happened in my thinking was was I started realizing that a lot of Christians used the word sovereignty to mean really different things. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of differences. I mean, I grew up pretty much going to one church my entire life, my dad's church, and we had our own particular view. When I went to Bible college, that's when I first started getting exposed to just the reality that Christians have different views on things. I definitely became more aware of the differences and just you know, the, the, the classic one that most people know is Calvinism, Arminianism. Many Christians are divided between those two camps. Some are somewhere in the middle. And so, yeah, it, you know, over time when I became a youth pastor, I started to run into other youth pastors or even some of my own volunteers that had different views on what sovereignty meant. And so, yeah, for me, it's just been, you know, the last 10 years, a topic I've wanted to explore and look into and read lots of books on. It's definitely been a big debate, and it's one that I'm very aware of at this point in my ministry career. Yeah, it's a debate that I felt like I first became aware of in high school, and it was during a time when a lot of the kids that I was in youth group with, we were all starting to learn what it meant for our faith to be our own and we started doing some of our own study mm. and we started digging in deeper and the thing that always blew me away was people were so interested in fighting about this topic mm. almost more than they were interested in like growing in Jesus together and so for me it made me kind of push away from this whole argument so I kind of delayed studying it I kind of just saw all of the anger and outrage that kind of came with this whole debate. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to be part of it. And it's only been in the last five, six, seven years or so that I've started really engaging with this topic and coming to what I think to be a biblical way of looking at things. That's good. 
before we get into it, I just want to say this, talking about theological topics that many Christians disagree on, I think it's important for us to say that, you know, me and Brian are obviously going to be arguing our points and our theological perspectives on these topics, but we never want to be that show that bashes other people for having different views. We respect anyone who disagrees with where we land. One of the tenets of this show and just the Good Lion Podcast Network is we believe people should hold their theology humbly. We're all in the same family and we're all just doing our best to learn about God and interpret what he said. And so we understand there are so many points of difference, but we believe that loving each other despite those differences is key. And so if you listen and you disagree with anything we say, we welcome any follow-up questions or comments and we'll try to respond. You can email us at goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Yeah, we definitely have both gone through a process of studying to come to these particular opinions. Hmm. But I know even like I was just saying with this debate, I used to hear people say, well, if you don't agree with me, you don't really love God. And Mm. I just think that's so far from the truth. So we're not saying this is the only way that Christians can think about this. I think one of the harder things to wrap our minds around in Christianity is that there is room to disagree. There is room to have some different opinions. There are some things that God hasn't given us 100% clarity on. And this is one of those topics. So We have arrived at this sort of position right now, but we want to remain students and we want to be ready to learn and ready to adapt with a better understanding, perhaps, of what God has really given us in the Bible. So in this section, we want to set up the theology of sovereignty. And by doing that, even though Brian and I believe that every Christian is a theologian, uh, would you agree with that, Brian? Every Christian is a theologian in some way? I would. I think that everybody carries a theology. I think a lot of theology we assume. We don't necessarily come to that position through study and work. So we want to make sure that we're pointing to people who have done far more work and study than we have to help set up the framework. Right. Yes. So we want to look at some guys who are far more brilliant than Brian or I, not saying that we're even brilliant at all, but two guys who are deep thinkers, two guys who are actually considered theologians. So we are going to be looking at some clips from Professor Gary Brashears and also Pastor John Piper, because in doing this, we don't want to, when we're talking about the topic of God being in control, we don't want to just be deconstructive where we're just pulling things down. We want to be reconstructive. So I think it's important for us to have all of the building blocks in front of us for us to decide how we're going to build this back up, if that makes sense. So Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about Gary? Gary is one of my personal favorite theologians. Mm, Gary is one of the more brilliant and yet humble minds in Christian thinking today. He Mm. is a PhD and a professor of theology at Western Seminary up in Portland, Oregon. Mm. He's been on this show a couple times, and I know for Aaron and I, we've both used those episodes really to just kind of nerd out. Those were my favorite episodes we've done for sure. It was so fun just to say like, here are things I've been thinking about. Please let me know if I'm wrong. And he has just such a humble, graceful, direct, but incredibly biblical way of looking at things. So I can't think of a better person to start with as we talk about this topic. All right, let's hear Gary's thoughts on sovereignty. God is sovereign. True or false? It depends on what you mean by sovereign. And this is where the actual discussion happens, is what does the word sovereign mean? 
And the thing of it is the word sovereign is not a biblical term. It's a theological term. If you look in scripture, the word sovereign never appears in scripture. Now, NIV uses it for when it uses Yahweh and Adonai, the two names for God, and puts them together. It translates them as sovereign Lord. But there is no statement in scripture anywhere that says God is sovereign. It's a theological term, and there are actually two different meanings for the term sovereign. If you look in the, the John Piper, I'll use him just because I respect John so highly. Uh, his understanding is God is sovereign means God controls every detail. And John is famous for saying there is no rebellious Adam in the entire universe because God is sovereign. So even the sin that's done by the most evil of people is actually God's perfect plan working out to accomplish his greater glory. And John does this very well. I highly commend that you look at his stuff. I don't agree with him on this particular point, though I agree with him on most points. So I just want to stop it right there. Something I want to clarify is I just, I feel like just knowing so many people uh, and even myself at times, when you hear somebody, a theologian like Gary, throw out a phrase where he says the sovereignty of God is not a biblical term. I feel like we can kind of clutch our pearls and say like, oh no, he's coming against this theology that I love so much by saying it's not biblical, but that's not what he's saying. When he says it's not biblical, he simply means that the term isn't found in scripture. So he's saying it's a theological term, which means even though that exact phrase isn't found in scripture, theologians have looked at scripture and pulled from scripture to build their idea of what this theology is. A great example of that would be the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't show up in scripture, I don't think even once, and yet it's definitely something that we hold to and think to, because even though there's not one verse we can look at where it says God is a triune God using those words, we can pull from all of scripture in the context to build our theology of why we think God is triune or God is sovereign. So before we get to Gary clarifying what his view of sovereignty actually means, he's referencing something that he's kind of contradicting. There's a view that John Piper holds that he's going to kind of contrast from. Let's hear from John Piper and get that view directly from him. Great. So here's a clip of John Piper being asked if he believes that God is ultimately, through his sovereignty, the one who causes evil to happen. Has God predetermined every tiny detail in the universe, such as dust particles in the air? And then I should add here, including all our besetting sins. Yes. Now, the reason I believe that is because the Bible says the dice are thrown in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. Why would he choose the die or the lot is cast in the lap in every decision? Because he's trying to think of the most random thing he could think of. And he says that. So randomness is not random to God. God is not the least taxed by keeping every sub-nuclear particle in its place. The macro world and the micro world are all managed by God, which means, yes, every horrible thing and every sinful thing is ultimately governed by God. And that's a problem, but the center of the solution to the problem 
is a choice you have to make about the cross. This is what has centered me anyway. Piper then goes on to use the story of the cross to support his argument. When you read that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews were all gathered together to do what God's plan and hand had predestined to take place in the killing of Jesus, you have God's plan and hand predestining the most horrible sins ever committed. Pilate's choices, the soldiers' cruel mockery, the uh, piercing of his side, the cries, crucify him, crucify him. These few hours in history was the climax of the worst wickedness that has ever been performed on the planet or ever will be. And God planned it that we might be saved from those sins. When you contemplate believing in a sovereign God who governs the dust motes, the waves, including tsunamis, when you contemplate believing in a totally sovereign God, you will center it right on the cross because you'll go crazy otherwise. You will. These things have driven people mad, but it it won't drive you mad if you say, he loves me and he governed the most wicked thing that ever happened in the world, the crucifixion of my Savior. Piper then goes on referencing the sermon that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2. Peter said in the sermon to the people who had killed Jesus, you acted in ignorance, but God fulfilled what he had promised by the prophets that the Christ must suffer. What that said to me was, again, Okay, these people didn't know what they were doing. God knew what he was doing. So the crucifixion of his son was, according to Isaiah 53, 10, the bruising by the father of the son, and therefore the worst sin that was ever committed was ordained by God. And the answer is yes, he controls everything, and he does it for his glory and our good. So there you have it. Piper gives us a snapshot of a view of sovereignty that many Christians hold to, one where God is so in control that he even causes sin and evil to happen for his purposes. Now, before we get into our discussion about that belief, let's go back to Professor Gary and how he feels about Piper's definition of sovereignty. By that definition, no, I don't believe God is sovereign. I don't think he controls and everything that happens is his perfect plan working out. The other definition of sovereign is that God does not give account to anybody and God can do anything that he chooses to do at any time he chooses to do it. And I believe that's true. When we say that America is a sovereign nation, we don't say that America controls all the events of the world. What we do say is we do not give account to England and we haven't always been a sovereign nation and that we can do anything that we have the power to pull off. There's all kinds of debate about what we should pull off. And I do think God's fully sovereign in that way. So I go to passages like Psalm 115, verse 3, which I do think is a good statement of sovereignty. Psalm 115, 3. Gosh, Psalm 119 goes forever. He says this, 
why should the nation say, where is their God? Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I think that's a statement of God's sovereignty. Uh, Psalm 33, 9 and 10 has a similar kind of statement. Uh, Psalm 33, uh, verse 9, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And I think what that's saying is it comes to the plans of the nation. That's not the result of his sovereign decree, but rather that he can overrule their evilness when he chooses to do that. But when he makes a plan, no nation can stop it, not even Satan himself. So I would say God is sovereign, but I'd say it in definition two, not definition one. And what happens is that in the debates, in the discussions, the term sovereign goes to definition one as the default. And what I want to do is back that up one step and say, what do you mean by sovereign? And I think the better biblical definition of sovereign is it means that God does not give account to anybody and God does whatever he pleases, when he pleases, and when he acts, nobody and nothing can stop him. And I fully believe the sovereignty of God in that sense. So yeah, we've heard now from John Piper and Professor Gary Bashirs. Brian, how, how did you feel about the way they laid that out? Do, do you agree more with Piper or Gary? And uh, I, I remember in the episode where we had Gary on, and one of those episodes, he actually brought up this idea of sovereignty as God doing what he wants when he wants. And I, I remember uh, when I was reading through the transcripts of an older episode, you were actually really struck by that idea. Yeah, that was one of the moments where, do you remember the galaxy brain meme that used <laughs> to be like a big thing and now seems to have faded away? I love it. That was a galaxy brain moment for me <laughs> of that definition of sovereignty. I am not just really intrigued by, I am prone to believe it. Mm. I would, I first feel like it's worth saying again, we believe that both Gary Brashears and John Piper are amazing people, mm. Christians, teachers, leaders, and authors. Yeah. We can put them both firmly in all of those categories. Very much. But that said, I do personally find Gary's definition of sovereignty to be much more compelling. And I think as a better representative of what we find in the Bible. Yeah. How about yeah. you? I, I would tend to agree. I think, again, for us... It, you know, it feels like it's such a trump card to say this, so I don't want to throw it around lightly, because really what it comes down to is scripture. It is, what do we believe about what scripture says? So cards on the table for me, I am not a Calvinist. Piper is. I grew up hearing negative things about Calvinists, which were just not true. And in past years, I've made such good friends uh, with Calvinists. In fact, there's one guy in particular I'm thinking of who out here in Oklahoma, him and I uh, have sat down at a restaurant and had a great meal and talked through our ideas on sovereignty and things. And, you know, it was funny because we were pointing out how several times in the conversation, both of us were saying things where it's like, well, I'm just trying to be faithful to what the Bible actually says. And that's the problem of these conversations is, you know, there's definitely people who just throw out scripture and say, uh, you know, this is my pet theology and I don't care what the Bible says. But I think when it comes to guys like Gary and Piper, they really are both trying to be faithful to scripture. And I can respect that even if I agree with one more than the other. I completely agree there. And I think even when we listened to John Piper's defining of sovereignty, he was using scripture again and again. Yeah. He 
wasn't just saying, I have this crazy random idea way out over there. Right. He was doing his best to be faithful to the text. And this is where, like we said in the intro, it's really important to come to this conversation holding our theology humbly, mm. but also not just giving it up the moment that somebody says something that seems slightly different. One of the beautiful things about studying the Bible is people have had 2000 years of practice. People have been working on their understanding, particularly of New Testament scriptures mm. for about 2000 years now. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of writing and we've had a lot of people thinking a lot of things like just think about how varied the articles were back in the middle of March about what COVID-19 was going to be. Yeah, very true. Like we had all of these ideas and we had them in two weeks. <laughs> We've had 2000 years to look at the Bible. Yeah. It shouldn't surprise us that ideas are all over the place. Yeah, there's still disagreements. And so getting into some of that disagreement, you know, I just want to comment for a minute on Piper's statement about God predestining the way that Jesus would die. If you're listening to the show and you don't know uh, the theological term predestination, basically it's the idea of God before time deciding that something is going to happen or predetermining that something is going to happen. So, well, I think that most Christians can agree that God in his foreknowledge knew that if he sent Jesus to earth to live the life that he did, that he would be killed in this way. I think it's far different to say that God controlled all of the sinful humans in the process and made them do what they did. With the interpretation that God used his foreknowledge to know what the enemy would do in advance and plan accordingly to enact his ultimate plan to defeat evil and save humanity, it really paints God as like this master tactician and planner. But I think if we interpret that God controlled every human involved, it makes him out to be a puppet master, you know, mind controlling humans in order to force them to kill him. I think there's similarities in the two interpretations, but the devil is in the details and the nuances. And to me, one is far more biblical and in line with God's character than the other. Yeah, one of the things that I felt as Piper was laying out his definition of sovereignty, and particularly as he was focusing in on the moments leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, I think that he really tuned in on some of the details mm. and made them part of the Old Testament predictions. Mm. So Piper brings up in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the father to bruise the son, mm. but then also jumps into the fact that Jesus was mocked by the crowds. He was beaten by the soldiers. Pilate looks at him and asks all of these condescending questions I don't think that we can pull all of those details out of that prophecy from Isaiah 53 is really looking at that from a big picture level. Right. It's what is pleasing to the father is that the son dies to win back humanity. I don't think that we can look at that passage in Isaiah and say, when that one soldier really landed that good zinger on Jesus, mm. that was part of what was pleasing the father. I, I think that we need to make some of those distinctions. Right. Yeah. Because it's this idea of, it's this idea of God looking into the future and seeing that all these things will happen to Jesus and going, oh, this is horrible that my son is going to face this, but I see the bigger picture. And I know that once he goes through this, he is going to make a way 
for salvation for all. And it's far different from him saying, okay, I'm going to sit down now and plan out every single little detail. I'm going to write the script, the horrible slurs and jokes that they leer at Jesus when he's getting his beard ripped out. Like those are actually penned by me. I am the writer of that horrible comedy. You know, that's the idea here. I think You know, when we're talking about Piper, talking about how Peter says in his sermon that people were ignorant about God working behind the scenes of Jesus's death. If Piper is saying that people were ignorant of the fact that they were crucifying God and also ignorant of God acting on his foreknowledge that Jesus will be put to death in this way. I'm in agreement with Piper there for sure. I mean, my stance is that God is a master tactician and he wants to save the world. And so he's looking for the perfect time in history to send his son and he knows how humans will react He knows that Jesus will die in that way and he plans for it. And then years before it happens, he is using his foreknowledge inspires prophets to write about it. Absolutely. That's beautiful. I think that's in line with what most Christians believe. But then we get down to the nitty gritty nuances of it. If what Piper is saying is that God made people crucify Jesus and, and that he, you know, was behind every single action, every word, almost like he possessed them and forced them to do it. I'm not on board with that. There's a difference between knowing someone is going to fire a gun and planning accordingly and then being the one who pulls the trigger for them. It's subtle, but it really makes a huge difference in in my eyes. I totally agree. And I think that difference is so important because that difference decides who's actually guilty. Mm. If it's something where God is doing each thing through us, It seems really confusing that God would both make us do something and also, as Piper described it, label it some of the worst sins ever. Right. Like, it's hard to, like, if you make a person do something, you're ultimately responsible for that thing that they did. Right. And so if God is making us do all of these terrible things, either back at the cross or even just looking at our own lives, like, think about the things that we've done that we're horribly embarrassed by and that we know are wrong. If God is making us do those things, then it wouldn't really make sense for us to feel guilty about them. And yet we do. And I think that's because we know that they originate from within us. Yeah, for sure. You know, something I want to say just really quick is, you know, most of our audience or a big chunk of our audience is Calvary Chapel people. I just feel like I need to say this really quick. Just like us Calvary guys are not a monolith and we have differences in what we think about different things. It's important to also know that Calvinists are not a monolith and they do not all agree. It's interesting. I know many Calvinists personally, and they would also not go as far as Piper does here when it comes to God being the author of sin. But, you know, to me, I'm looking at what Piper is saying and his basic argument seems to be, if you ask me, you know, Piper, if you ask Piper the question, is God the one who causes evil to happen? He would say, yes. Why? Well, Piper would say, because he causes Jesus's death to happen. And that was the worst sin ever. Therefore, God made that sin happen and he must make all of the lesser sins happen. Why does he do it? for our good and for his glory. Uh, He creates, and, and this is not Piper, this is sort of my commentary, but it seems like he creates problems for us and then he solves those problems so we can appreciate how good he is. 
an analogy I would go to is Toy Story, right? Like when Andy plays with his toys, who are sentient beings, and he doesn't know that. So the, you know, the illustration doesn't completely parallel because God obviously knows that we're sentient. But when Andy plays with his toys, there's scenes in one of the Toy Stories, I think Toy Story 2, maybe 3, but it's where he's using Mr. Potato Head and Ham the Pig as villains. And so these are action figures who have gone limp and they are really just doing whatever their master, their their I don't know what to call him, their kid, Andy, is doing. Andy's playing with them, and it's his hands that are moving them. It's his voice that's speaking through them. He's causing them to do evil things, right? He makes them do villainous things like kidnap Bo Peep, tie her to the train tracks, strap dynamite to the train, and then he takes Woody and Jesse and the good guys, and he makes them do heroic things and rescue them. And so that's sort of the picture of God that I get if we take this line of thinking to its logical conclusions. It's God controls the heroes, God controls the villains, and really he's just kind of putting on this puppet show for our benefit and for his glory, which it can, I don't know, I want to say it can sound good, but to me it doesn't sound good at all. I know that's just opinion, you know? I I know I'm I'm not even basing it off scripture, but I just say for, for me as a human, when I think of God, like God as the puppet master, that it sounds dark, you know? First of all, this show has had far too little Toy Story talk up to this point. <laughs> And I think that I love Toy we Story should so really much. strive. Toy Story is my favorite Pixar movie, and it's not even close. <laughs> and it might just be my favorite movie. Which one? Toy Story 1, 2, or 3? The original. Yeah. One is, so I, th- I think one is the best. I think two is the worst. Do you get emotional when you watch Toy Story 1? I get really smiley. <laughs> and this happened one time. I was married for like two years at this point, And my wife loves kids' movies. Like, she's one of the more nostalgic people that I know. I knew there was a reason and so I she, like, got along with her good. She likes semi-regularly suggests that we watch some kids movie from the 90s or early 2000s. I do that all the time. My wife is like, nope. (laughs) I'm normally against it. That's definitely true. She'll go for human movies, kids movies like Hook, but when it comes to cartoons, it's very hard to get her to watch a cartoon. Yeah, so that's kind of similar with us only switching who's doing what. But one time I said, fine, if you want to watch a kids movie, I'll do it, but I get to pick the kids movie (laughs) and I pick Toy Story And I giggled basically the whole time (laughs) because it had been so long since I had seen it. And I love that movie. And I'm also in that perfect Toy Story age range (laughs) because in Toy Story 3, Andy is leaving for college. Yeah, we were Andy's age. that came out the summer that I was finishing high school and going to college. So all that to say, very in on Toy Story. Going back to the illustration that's being made here, I think what makes that picture so unsatisfying is when we think about what Andy actually accomplishes, the answer is nothing. Yeah. Andy didn't actually save Bo Peep. Andy didn't actually overcome an evil potato and an evil pig. He created this kind of play world, had fun, and then left it for the real world. Hmm. It feels very hollow for God to simply be running a little play world Mm. if there's really nothing at stake because he can just make whatever end he actually wants. And maybe this is a little bit of a different question, but 
if this is God creating the exact amazing, wonderful world he wants, then I've got a lot of questions about the kind of stuff he likes. Yeah. Yeah. And if he is directly causing the worst of the worst sins, I mean, this is, this might sound offensive to somebody who believes like Piper, but I would just say in my own heart, it's very hard to worship a God who causes sin directly, who causes cancer, Mm -hmm. who causes rapes, who causes murders. If you are going to interview for a job and you learn that your boss made the employees do those things, I I would not apply for that job. Now, to be fair, there's a whole nother question where someone like us might say, God does not cause those things, but he allows those things. We have to be fair. That is also a very difficult thing to consider. That's a deeply theological question that we've already covered that a bit in this whole mini series we did on did God cause COVID? No, we don't think so, but he's allowed it to happen. Could he stop it with a snap of his fingers like Thanos? Yes. So is it hard? Like, do we have to wrestle with these things? Are there easy answers? No, but I do think that we have to be consistent with God's character and his nature. When I look through scripture, I do see a God that allows evil, but ultimately saves and rescues and redeems. And that's complex and that's nuanced. And we can talk about that, but I don't really see a God who causes evil. I see a God who hates evil. He seems to be repulsed by it. He seems to be disgusted by it. He seems to long for a world when his people don't have to deal with it anymore. If he was the one directly causing it, I I mean, why would he even be so disgusted towards it? Why would he even be so disappointed when Israel falls into sin? Why would Jesus weep at the death of Lazarus when he knows that he's just going to, you know, when he, you know, according to Piper, he would be the one who killed Lazarus and then brought him back. It just doesn't logically and consistently check out. And again, I know God's ways are above ours. Of course, human logic isn't our definition for how we try to parse these things out. But I'm just saying to me, when I look at scripture and the whole context of scripture and the whole story, for me, at least it doesn't fully check out. Now that I think is the big key, because one thing that we need to be very careful of is we can't just believe in the God we find easiest to believe in. Yeah. One of the big things that we try to do in this show is we work through difficult things and we admit a lot. Hey, this element of the Bible, it's weird. We don't like it. It, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it makes a lot of sense. I was leading a home group for college students when my wife and I were living in California and working out at the Bible college. And one of the things I felt like I said a bunch was I would look at a passage with the students and just trying to promote honesty in the room. I would say, look, my heart does not like this passage (laughs) and we have to deal with those things just because we found a God that we find easy to believe in. That doesn't mean that we found the real God. What we need to do is search the scriptures and let the Bible show us what God is all about. Absolutely. So with all that in mind, should we talk about Joseph? Yeah, let's talk about Joseph. I recently heard a pastor talking about the coronavirus pandemic, and he was talking about God's sovereignty defined as God is in control. And like we said, many Christians have different interpretations of what we mean when we say God is sovereign. So this guy in particular was talking about sovereignty in the context of coronavirus, and he brought up the idea of Joseph. 
And then there's this verse where after Joseph goes through all these terrible things and he's sold into slavery by his brothers, he gets accused of rape, which he didn't do. He gets thrown in jail and all of this horrible, tragic stuff happens to him. And in the end, God redeems the situation, right? Right. It's the perfect turnaround. Joseph ends up interpreting the dreams of some really powerful political figures in Egypt. Pharaoh gets word of this. Pharaoh ends up promoting Joseph, basically, whatever like the vice president of <laughs> Egypt would be. Right. Is he vice Pharaoh vice or Pharaoh. something like that? Yeah. I heard Matt Chandler describe this and he used a phrase that like totally stuck with me where he's like, Joseph gets out of jail, brother just got out of Alcatraz, <laughs> and now he's second in command. That's his story, yeah. complete rags to riches. Yes, absolutely. So let's take a look at the verse. It's Genesis 50, verse 20. When Joseph finally confronts his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, and basically were the ones who caused all of these horrible things to happen to him, he says to them, guys, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So we've all grown up hearing that verse. It's classic, you know, classic redemption story. But then I was listening. It's a feel good verse. Yeah, it's a feel good verse. But then I was listening to this pastor who was trying to explain the Joseph story. And he said this, he said, a lot of people interpret that passage as what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. But then the pastor goes on to say, he says, no, look right there in the text. It says meant. So really God meant for all of those things to happen. All of these terrible evil things that happened to Joseph, they were evil things. And God actually caused those things to happen for his glory. And I was listening to that guy talk about it. And it was very similar to kind of what Piper would say. And I was just like, man, I'm not so sure about that interpretation. Can we dive into that a little bit? Absolutely. And so I think we need to do a little bit of agreeing and a little bit of disagreeing. Okay. So let's start with some of the places where I feel like I agree with that particular pastor. First off, Satan does not seem to be in this verse at all. Hmm. So this is a conversation between Joseph and his brothers. Right. And Joseph is the one that says, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. The, the you is very clearly Joseph's brothers. He doesn't right. seem to be accusing Satan. He doesn't seem to be accusing some kind of demonic influence that came over the brothers or something like that. Maybe we can't fully rule that out. But that does not seem to be what Joseph has in mind. He right. seems to really just be talking to his brothers. Yeah, the intent of the character of Joseph in the scripture there seems to be directly talking to his brothers. I think, though, it does make sense that people bring Satan into it because for us as Christians, we understand there are spiritual forces at work behind the scenes. So I think we could argue that Satan was the one who was inspiring the brothers to do evil behind the scenes. We don't know that for sure. I think if he wasn't directly inspiring it, he was at least cheering it on from the sidelines and benefiting from it. Yeah, I'm sure that Satan was happy with the plan that the brothers had. And, and I agree, we can't fully rule out whether or not there was some kind of demonic influence. But as Joseph is making this statement, he doesn't seem interested in that. Yeah. What he seems interested in is you brothers were acting in a certain way, but God acted in a different way. That seems to be the contrast that's made. Okay, so let's look at what the original Hebrew says. The original Hebrew lays out the sentence structure like this in Genesis 50, 20. 
But as for you, you meant against me evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about a day like this to save alive people many. So what did the Hebrews mean when they wrote the word meant in this story? Because the word meant, it's the same Hebrew word both times. Yeah, so that word meant is going to be the key word for understanding this sentence. And in Hebrew, practicing a little bit on actually pronouncing Hebrew words, <laughs> this is the word chasav. You want to go for it or are you going to leave me on my own? <sighs> Well done. So that word there most literally means to weave or to fabricate. And figuratively, it means to plot or to contrive. And it usually means in some kind of malicious sense Mm. that it's not plotting a surprise party for your friend, but plotting a surprise the way that Joseph's brothers did Hmm. to go off and sell him into slavery. So this word gets used a number of times. I believe it's used more than 120 times throughout the Hebrew Bible. One place where it shows up a lot is in Exodus 35 and 36. Hmm. The artistic work that's being done in the temple As it says, you will work to create that image of an angel or that utensil or that kind of nice artistry work. So the word meant there is used in the sense of design, like you you designed to do it this way artistically. Well, either you designed to do it or you actually made the thing itself. Oh, yeah. You crafted it. So like maybe the way that, yeah, like crafted or like painted kind of a thing. Fabricated. Yeah, that's where that part of the definition would come into play. The actual creation of the thing Mm. not just the intention behind the thing okay so this word also shows up in nehemiah chapter 6 as nehemiah is doing some restorative work in israel there were enemies that wanted to stop him and so in the english translation it would say his enemies were scheming to harm him and it's that same word chabad Mm. it's that same they were plotting or contriving they were building up some kind of scheme against Nehemiah, Hmm. that's the same word that gets used in Genesis 50 for you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Hmm. not only does it get used of Nehemiah's enemies in chapter 6, Nehemiah's enemies then go and tell the king, hey, Nehemiah is plotting to rebel against you Hmm. and uses that same word for to contrive, to plot, to put together some kind of evil scheme. Weaving, crafting, plotting, scheming, these are different ways of viewing that word. When I, when I think of weaving and fabricating, it gives me kind of a sense of something being worked on. Like imagine a quilt with two people sitting on opposite sides of it, and maybe there's evil people on one side of the quilt who are sewing as the same time as God, and they have this intention of, I'm going to sew this quilt for evil, and they're creating holes and tears in the fabric But then God is thinking, nope, I've got a better plan. And he sews up the holes and redoes the design to make it beautiful. Both were working on the quilt at the same time. But the difference is not that the one quilter was controlling the others, but that the other quilter, the God in this scenario, he was much more skilled and powerful and perceptive. And so he was able to see what the other side was doing and then override it and and turn what they were making for evil into good. So that brings me to the second part of the Genesis verse, because I completely agree with what you're saying there. When we look at this reading of you plotted, you created, you weaved evil against me, 
but God weaved or fabricated or plotted goodness. What we're seeing there is God was not the one generating the evil. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so this is kind of our disagreeing with that pastor that you were listening to where he and says Piper. that, yeah, where they would say that God wanted those bad things to happen because they created a good result. Mm. Here, I kind of see the brothers wanted and created evil, <laughs> yeah. but God standing above that evil wanted good. And so he created good. Mm. God was actually against the plan of the brothers. He did not want to see the destruction of Joseph So God, being above the brothers, worked his plan, not just for Joseph's freedom and healing, but also to bring it all the way around back for the healing and freedom of those brothers as well. Yeah. Wow. What a good point. It wasn't just for Joseph's benefit. It was for the whole family. That's how amazing God is, that you can be the one plotting evil. And it's interesting, too, to think that in the eyes of the brothers, they're doing what Adam and Eve, their first parents did. They were defining good and evil for themselves. They saw Joseph as a problem. They saw Joseph as a point of strife and contention in their family because their dad was playing favorites and so it was causing all this drama. And so in their eyes, it was right and good to send Joseph away. They thought they were doing the right thing when they were obviously doing it in a very evil way. But it's just, it's making that point that we as humans are constantly defining good and evil in our own eyes And God is saying, okay, I get what you're doing. I get what you're trying to do, but you're doing it the wrong way. You're you're going about it an evil way. I am going to actually make this good. You can't make it good. You're just going to mess up and make things worse. I am going to step in and override your evil with my goodness. And that touches on what Gary was saying. Gary wasn't saying that God was causing evil. Gary's definition was, When God has a plan to do good, there's no evil plan that can override that goodness. So Satan, evil humans, demons, they can all be operating their own little plans on the side. But ultimately, God's plan is going to override what they try to do. And there might be times where evil people and humans can throw something that looks like to us as a a monkey wrench in God's plan. I'm sure to the disciples, Jesus on the cross seemed like this isn't the plan. But God was looking at it saying, yeah, I know it looks bad. I know it looks evil, but watch me take this evil and work it together for good. I heard one pastor talking about this in uh, the context of judo. So judo is one of the only kinds of martial arts where basically you are not on the offensive. You are not going out and attacking others. But what you're doing is if someone throws a punch or a kick at you, you grab their arm and grab their leg and you actually absorb their blow And then you flip them and you basically overcome their attack with this defensive mechanism that ultimately puts them out of commission. And I love that picture, what God does constantly. It's this idea of divine judo, where Satan and evil humans are constantly throwing these attacks at God. He's absorbing their evil, which is what Jesus did on the cross. He was absorbing our evil. And then he flips evil on its head and he's the one standing over it triumphantly. And I think that's a really cool picture. I think it's an amazing picture. And I think that it's something that we don't really sit with because we like to think of God as the one who's acting. Mm. He's the one who creates. He's the one who writes the Bible. He's the one who sends Jesus. Jesus goes and conquers death. Jesus now sends us to share that message. All of these things are God acting, doing something, sending someone out, pushing something forward. 
we're not really very comfortable thinking about God as reacting. We like to think he's the one that acts. He makes stuff happen. We kind of learn it along the way. Well, really, this view seems to say that God actually honors and respects the actions of people and reacts to them accordingly. And I think that's exactly what we see in the Joseph story. The brothers act they do a bad thing. They take all of the principles of love and generosity and kindness that God wants his people to live by, and they do the opposite of that. And so what God does is he reacts and says, okay, you're going to do an evil thing. I'm going to still turn this around for more flourishing, for mm. more hope, mm. for more life, and for more healing. Mm. As we think about this topic of God reacting, we don't want to make it sound like God isn't putting anything together. One of my mm. favorite verses in thinking about this subject is Job 42, verse 2. This is at the end of Job's story. He's suffered. He's felt like it was meaningless and hopeless, and he's questioned God and wondered what God was doing, and God showed up and revealed himself. And in response to everything that Job learns in his life, he says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Mm -hmm. That's the beautiful thing about following God, the way that I think we see him in the Bible. He has his plan that he wants to accomplish, and he gives us space. He lets us do our thing. But ultimately, none of that gets in the way of the plan that he wants to accomplish. Yeah, the thing that instantly comes to my mind is one point of agreement I do have with my Calvinist friends, and that is God's ways are higher than ours, and he creates paradigms that aren't ever going to fit perfectly into our human understanding of logic. So I believe that God is both so in control that he has a master plan and nothing can stop that plan. When he purposes to do something, there is nothing that can stop or get in the way of that plan. The cross was absolutely a plan that he had from the very start. I believe even before humans were even made, he knew it would be necessary. He knew that we would sin. He planned how he was going to save us. I also believe he created free will and gave us agency in the middle of that story almost like a play that's been written and he knows exactly how he's going to close out the final act because the final act is a one man show where he does all the work. And yet during acts two and three, right, he allows some improv. He allows the actors to kind of make choices about what they're going to do. But in the end, he's going to close out the play exactly how he wants to. That's sort of the dichotomy and the tension I think we're dealing with. So here's the thing. I just really fundamentally disagree so much with the view of God and the interpretation of God that says that he causes evil. And I say that with total respect for those who have theological leanings, where maybe they take the idea of God being so in control so far to the extent that they believe that God causes ultimately everything to happen. Yeah, these are really challenging, difficult passages to work through. This is a hard topic to try to synthesize a single idea out of. Right. And we're all trying to just do the work of interpretation. This is us, we believe, doing our part in that work. Right. So that being said, I respectfully would have to disagree with that view of God because 
I think one healthy exercise is following a belief to its logical conclusions. So if we say that the things that Satan caused for evil or the things that humans caused for evil, it was actually God causing things for good, that gets dicey very quickly. Like, for instance, let's say there's a woman and she was raped, which is horrible. It's a horrible thing. We can all agree. It's one of the worst things that can happen to another human being. But then let's say that as a result of that rape, she has a beautiful child who she ends up having a great and wonderful relationship with, and it changes her life for the good. I think it's very problematic if our interpretation of these events are, oh yeah, see, you were blessed. It was all worth it in the end. Like, it was actually God who caused that horrible thing to happen to you. It was God that caused the guy to rape you because he had this bigger plan for his glory. He caused someone to rape you so that you would be a testimony of his glory and grace when you get up to share with people about this daughter that you now have, this blessing that came from it. I, I think that's very problematic and it's a very dark view of who God actually is. Yeah, and I think one of the problems with that view is it's nice to see the end of that storyline and be able to look back and say, oh, look, this was because good things happened afterwards. But that's not really a hope you can hold on to in the moment. I think one of the problems with this view is you tell that story and it's heartbreaking in the middle of it, but it comes to a nice, happy resolution. And the problem is we know maybe you're listening and you're going through a real time of brokenness. Mm. It's not going to be comforting if I tell you, don't worry, this is what God wants. Yeah. Because God doesn't want brokenness in our lives. God yeah. wants wholeness and healing. That's why he sends Jesus. And while we can't necessarily draw the perfect parallel between God as a father and a human father, because we know how flawed human fathers can be, Jesus still tended to use that image a lot. Mm -hmm. He was constantly using the picture of God as father. Right. And in the Bible, we see that parallel to help us understand who God is and more so what his character is really like. Yeah, he's the perfect picture of what a perfect father is supposed to be. Yeah, and so trying to wrap our minds around the image of a human father delighting in something terrible like that happening to his daughter or even trying to be an active part yeah. of making sure that were to happen because he knew some kind of blessing was going to be on the way. That's a really dark and twisted view, I believe, yeah. of who God is as he's presented in the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's like trying to view a father hiring someone to attack his daughter because he has this plan about a child being born and it being a blessing to the whole family. That's We look at that and we go, that is sin. That is not consistent with the character of God. Again, God's ways are higher than ours. We've talked before about God's right to judge people, God's right to wipe people out and be kind of judge, jury, and executioner because of his position and because of his holiness when it comes to sin. But we see consistently his character is one where even though he has that right to wipe out humans, he's consistently compassionate. He's consistently trying to save them. And so it's just this dark, twisted view of God that I'm seeing. And you know, I, I would say that those who would interpret the scripture to say that all of these bad things that happened, God actually caused it because it was a part of his bigger plan. In their minds, I don't think they're viewing God this way as someone who would cause rape. I really don't. But I would just lightly challenge them. If you follow these views to their logical conclusions, that is what you get. 
There are plenty of horrible stories throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, of murder and rape and abuse and treachery. And oftentimes in these stories, God hates this sin and he fights against it and he prevails. He proves himself to be merciful and just and to bless the broken. But if we believe that God is causing these events in the service of his own glory, again, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I just really think that is a dark view of God. I think it's not a view that we would bring to any person. If I came to your house and I lit it on fire <laughs> and I let it burn one of the rooms and then I put the fire out and said, I just saved you from a fire, would you be happy with me or would you be mad at me? Right. Of course you'd be, you'd be mad. mad. Because you knew that I caused something terrible to happen in the name of trying to show you that I'm bigger than that bad cause. But if that bad cause is me, you end up in a really messy, difficult situation if we're going to try to apply that logic to God. Right. And again, like we do believe, we've talked about this before in our episode about the cup of wrath. Does God allow people to face the consequences of their sin? Yes, if you are a drug addict, God at times is going to allow you to face, you know, you're enjoying the highs. He's going to allow you to face the lows. He is going to allow you to face the brokenness that comes with drug addiction. He'll at times remove his hand of protection and allow you to experience those consequences. But then if we are to look at that story from the perspective of God is the one who got you hooked on crack. God is the one who pushed the heroin needle into your veins. That like it's just it's so it's yeah. so different. Consistently we see, especially for Christians, a huge part of God allowing us to face consequences for our actions is actually to show us how broken we are without him and how much we actually need him and to cause us to come back to him to experience grace and forgiveness and redemption. But if that's his end goal, it's like, you know, if his end goal is redemption and people being saved, but he controls everything under that view of God being that much in control, why would he put people through that? Like, why would he push the heroin into someone's veins? Why would he cause the rape just to bring somebody back to him? Like, that's... I don't know. It's twisted. Yeah. The, when you go to the beach, the lifeguard is there to save you from a danger that's already out there. The lifeguard doesn't go into the water with you and hold you under for a bit so that then danger is presented and then pull you out. Mm. There is an actual danger. Going back to the burning the house down situation, sin is us slowly burning down our own houses. Hmm. And the question is, are we the ones burning those houses or is God giving us all the stuff so that we can burn them? I think sin is us burning our own houses. Hmm. Sin is us doing things that are destructive for ourselves and for other people. Yeah. Sin is us causing chaos in a world that God does not want to be chaotic. So he doesn't create the danger and then pull us out of it. We need his rescue because that danger is already there. Right. And we're really good at making these kinds of terrible things happen to ourselves and to each other. God right. rescues us from that danger. Yes. Now, what we're going to talk about in the next episode after this is the question of, isn't God allowing evil just as bad as him causing it? But that is the next episode. So there's a teaser for that. <laughs> Let's close out this episode by let's go uh, back to some stuff by Gary. You can never have enough Gary Brashears. I'm going to pull out a document Gary wrote years ago 
called Why Does Everybody Want to Be Calminian, <laughs> which I think is a great, that's a great title. Gary, I, I heard about this from one of my friends who goes to uh, one of Gary's seminary classes. So I had to email him and ask him about it. But basically, Gary has worked hard to just think through what it actually means to be somebody in the middle of Calvinism and Arminianism, which is historically that's been for Calvary people kind of our position. Our founder, Chuck Smith, has always kind of held this idea of a middle ground. But Gary actually did the work of fleshing out theologically what that looks like. So he kind of tongue in cheek came up with this idea of not being Calvinist or Arminian, but uh, Calminian. So it's a great document. I'm going to link it in the show notes for any of you guys who want to read. But for now, um, I'm going to pull out and read just a few things from this when it talks about God's sovereignty and uh, just the nature of some of these hypothetical ideas we're bringing up. Key points in the enemy narrative is if God really cared about you, he would not allow this to happen to you. He's saying that's one of the key lines of logic that Satan throws at people. If God really cared about you, he would not allow these bad things to happen to you. So then Gary goes on to say, it does not question God's existence or power, but his goodness and compassion. The key point in the accusation is that everything that happens is under God's watch and he personally allows it or perhaps just neglects to intervene. And then Gary starts listing different types of suffering and under the Calminian understanding, this synthesis between kind of these two views held in tension, this is kind of how he lays it out. One, when a person gets raped, right? What is that? What kind of evil? It's a moral evil. Therefore, it is not God's will because moral evil is sin and God is against sin. Example two, when a person gets cancer, what kind of evil is that? Is it a moral evil? No, it's natural evil. So it's not God's will because it's a part of a broken world. God did not create the world to be broken. We humans brought the brokenness into it. And so it's not moral evil, it's a natural evil, and it's not God's will. Example three, when a person gets persecuted for being a Christian, is that God's will? Well, according to what Gary's writing here, no, it's not God's will that we be persecuted, but it is his will that we would be faithful in the middle of that persecution. So that's kind of the tension. When we're persecuted, God doesn't want that to be happening to us, but he does have things that he wants from us in the middle of that. The fourth example that he gives is when I go to share in the suffering of another person, the suffering that person has, that may or may not be part of God's will, but it is God's will that I go and share that hurt with that person. God wants us to be agents of hope and healing, regardless of how the brokenness came to be. Hmm. The fifth example that he gives, when God punishes me for sin, it's not God's will that we sin, but it is his will that he uses that punishment to bring us back to him. Think about when you were a kid. Your parents didn't enjoy needing to punish you, but they were excited about how giving discipline would lead to your growth in character. That's the same kind of thing that God is doing. And the sixth example that he gives is when the devil brings disaster into my life. That's not God's will. That's the devil fighting against the good things that God wants to do in your life. That's clearly anti-God. A good rule of thumb is if the devil does it, it's not God's will. Right. He's just generally 
fighting against the goodness that God wants to bring into our lives. And so Gary closes out saying, in all of these examples, no matter how awful the evil, God is bringing his goodness, no matter what the situation is. There's lots of ways that evil crop up in the world that wouldn't be part of God's will, yet God is still bringing about goodness and life and hope. So good. So good. That's seriously so good. How did you feel about that? It feels like it puts words to the emotions that I feel behind theological arguments. Mm, Like there are times where I have theological arguments and I know that I don't want my theology to be based on my emotions. I completely agree. But sometimes I hear things like what we've been talking about that Piper will lay out and something in me goes, but that's just not what I feel God wants to bring about. And so I feel like Gary laying out those examples it's just putting words to oh this is what my heart actually wants to see happen yeah and that that can be the danger right we don't want to develop our theology based on what we want to see happen we can't shape a god in our own image but i i would say knowing you and i would feel the same way when we say i don't feel like god would do what this pastor is saying he would do those feelings are coming from what we know about God and have experienced of him in our reading and understanding of the scriptures. Almost like if someone told you, you know, hey, your wife shot somebody in the face, you'd be like, I don't feel like that is possible. Like I know her, I have this experience of her. And that's where it gets tough because I don't want to say that John Piper experiences God any less than me from, I mean, he's got his whole writings on, uh, you know, the, the hedonistic Christianity. The guy seems like he truly does experience God a lot. That's the hardest thing about this is when it comes to theology, we've got all of these people that truly do love God and truly do care about him and truly do feel strong things about him. And, and we've all read the scriptures and we've all learned things from other pastors and other theologians. So it is, it's so, it's challenging to face the reality that we come to different conclusions. So I don't want to make John Piper the villain of this episode. I I respect him, even though I disagree with him on much. All that to say, what Gary is laying out here to me is a great synthesis of these two views in tension, because to me, it doesn't take any glory away from God. That's a big thing that's an argument in this is you don't want to take away the glory of God, right? God has the authority. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. I don't see that being taken away. I see God allowing evil to exist, but then I also see him coming against it strongly and fighting against it. He's the God who helps the broken, raped woman. He's the God who heals the cancer victim either in this life or in the next life when they receive their new body that can never be taken away or infected with disease. I don't see any glory from God being taken away. Yeah, ultimately what it comes down to is despite the fact that there is evil in the world, Jesus has made a way for us to be brought back to the greatest good. Mm, God is in the healing business. He knows that through our own choices and through us rejecting him, the only outcome would be danger to our souls. And Mm. oftentimes it translates as danger to our bodies and God doesn't always take away that danger here in the moment while we're on earth in this life, but he has made a way to make sure that no danger can affect our eternal state. He's made sure that we can be grounded in a hope that never fades, in a love that never dies, 
and in a future that never goes dim. It's good. I think one really easy way we can apply this before we close out is, you know, COVID-19. Again, going back to these questions people have about it. COVID, it's a horrible thing. Was it God's will that it happened? No, right? That's natural evil. It's a part of a broken world. Was it God's will when people spread the disease to others? No, that's either moral evil. It's people you know, purposefully neglecting others and being selfish and not taking care of one another, or it's just people being neglectful and not thinking through, but it's not God causing it. It's moral evil and it's a part of the broken world. So we see a lot of things that are not God's will in all this, but it clearly is God's will that the church would continue to be faithful and that as we see the difficulties and struggles of the people around us, we go join in their trials. Mm. We go meet them in the pain. We try to show them that there is hope and life beyond a fractured and divided world. It is his will that we would use this moment to reflect and to realize a broken world is really good at showing us that we are broken people. Mm. And God doesn't want us to be exclusively focused on the disease of COVID-19 that's going around. He wants us to really focus on the disease of sin Mm. and how we're broken and infected internally. And we need to be searching for an answer that won't come from another person, but will come only from hope in Jesus. That's good. And certainly the devil, you know, Satan, the enemy, Hasatan, is doing things behind the scenes, but that's not God's will. But even so, Jesus is overcoming everything that Satan is trying to do in this moment. And man, it feels, especially right now with it being just an election year and all of the crazy drama, every time I turn on the news, I get depressed. Every time I read a news story, it gets depressed. Satan is absolutely doing a lot of terrible things right now, tearing people apart, dividing mm-hmm. people, even Christians. But in all of that, I have so much hope that he, Jesus is overcoming what the devil is meaning for evil. And he is doing things for good. He is doing that divine judo. You know, I truly believe that. And I believe that he is bringing us every day closer to a world without disease, without sickness, without racism, without division, without violence, without any of these horrible things. I truly believe that. And then that is where I'm so thankful for the sovereignty of God, because I look at that and I say that is one huge aspect of God's will, where he is so sovereign that nothing can change that plan. Nothing can override it. That train is going to arrive at the station. And we can count on that. We can have hope on that. And I think that's something, maybe this is us looking a little bit ahead to the next episode, but as we've spent all of this time tackling the question, does God cause evil or does he allow it? We would land on the side where we believe God does not cause it. We believe Mm. he allows it, Mm. but not for long. He doesn't allow it forever. And that's something that I think we really need to bring into this question because I know for me, I can think through this question and it can be like that experience you just talked about of scrolling through your newsfeed and reading news articles. When we get into how does God relate with all of the terrible evil in the world, it can get depressing. Mm. It can make us down. It can make us wonder what is God even doing? What he's always been doing is pushing back on evil. What he did at the cross was he conquered evil and what he will do one day when he returns is he will set every wrong back to right and so yeah does he cause it does he allow it we can get really caught up in it right now he allows it but not forever that'll preach (laughs) 
Thanks so much, guys, for listening to this episode of the Good Line Podcast. Man, what a crazy, crazy conversation. It's a big topic and there's a lot to work through. And so thank you for giving us the time to work through this. Hopefully this was helpful as we worked through these different things. And if there's more that we could help you work through, please reach out to us. Yeah. Send us an email at goodlinenetwork at gmail.com. And if you have questions, if you have pushback, if you think we're just dead wrong about something, we invite that. Let us know. We'd love to talk to you. We're not experts. We're two guys that love Jesus and love theology. And we believe, again, hold your theology humbly. Always always hope you're 80% right, but know you're probably 20% wrong. We hope that we're people who are ready to learn that we're wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. At the end of the day, our objective is we just want people to grow closer to Jesus. And a lot of times, for me at least, one of the things that's helped me grow closer to Jesus is just thinking deeply through issues like this and hearing from other sides, hearing from multiple sides on these issues and just learning that the body of Christ is working together to try to parse through these things. It's helpful. So we hope this episode has been helpful to you. And why don't we very quickly read a few reviews? We said we would. So uh, we said at the end of the first episode of this season that if you left a review, we would read it. And that's <laughs> what I'm going to do right now. Although right. the hard part is this first review doesn't have any words in the title of it. It's just three exclamation points. So if I assume you were going to make a noise that was the noise three exclamation marks would make, what would that noise be? I think it's an excited dolphin. <laughs> Can you do that? that? Like, I can't. Okay. You're a way better voice actor than I am. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'll add the sound effect in right here. Thanks, Excited Dolphin. So our first review comes from an Excited Dolphin named Blazin Torbor or Blaze Into Arbor or Blazinintor Bor. I don't know, something like that. Encouraging and so with four O's, fantastic exclamation point. You really like exclamation points. Thankful to be able to hear and learn from your voices. You guys rock. So kind. You rock, Blazin Torbor. Thanks, Blazin Torbor. Here's one from D. Fowley, my mother-in-law, the amazing D. Fowley. She Aww, said, D. Fowley. Just listen to another episode by Aaron and Brian. As always, very encouraged and relevant content for these trying times. I'm, uh, you know, just the fact that she listens, it's just, it's awesome. I love it. Love you, so D. So cool. You're the best. Many people complain about their mother-in-law. I've got no complaints. I've got a good mother-in-law. Completely agree. You don't I mean about her. my mother-in-law. Oh. I don't know yours, but I can, I imagine. I know your wife. We're not... <laughs> We're not just trying to get brownie points with our wives. We genuinely like our mothers-in-law. All right. Exactly. Deal with it. One last review comes from one of the members of the Good Lion group chat, Sam Figura123. I'm assuming he's the 123rd (laughs) Sam Figura. I, I don't know any other way to read that. He says, excellent exclamation point. You guys are incredible. I love your podcasts, your style, your words. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sam. You help make us better by being we, part of that group chat. We like your style and your words. He's a good guy with good style and good words. So thank mm. you, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is 
goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.